Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Welcome. This is indeed a day of celebration. Uh, the, the Easter greeting that we use isn't just uh, a way of consecrating the day and acknowledging its uniqueness. It's a fundamental confession that we make as Christians. Our Lord Jesus died and rose from the grave. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Uh, turn in the Gospel of John to John chapter 20, where we are given a divinely inspired eyewitness account of the events that transpired that Easter morning. John chapter 20, uh, and we'll read most of the chapter, though I will skip over the bit about Thomas and his uh, slowness to believe. John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who's John, by the way, the, the writer of the gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw that the linen cloths were lying there, and, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, uh, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do, you, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jump forward to verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, today we rejoice because you have sent us a Savior to rescue us from darkness and death and sin and judgment and bring us to you. Thank you for your Son who willingly yielded his life for us and whom you raised from the grave on Easter Sunday. Because of his victory, we have a victory. Our sins are pardoned and we have the hope of eternal life. Thank you, Father, for what you have done to us, or for us. 
Father, we pray this morning that if there are any in our midst who have not placed their faith in the Savior, who have not trusted him for life, we pray that you would do what you do and bring the dead to life. We pray there, there would be not one who leaves this place this morning not trusting in Jesus as their Savior. We pray that you would use John's account of the resurrection to build us up in our faith, to conform us more deeply to the image of your Son, and grant us to be people characterized by hope and love, peace and joy. Amen. There's an ancient Latin poet named Catullus who in a poetic line well captures the powerlessness, helplessness, hopelessness that we feel at the graveside. He writes, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, we must sleep a never-ending night. The sun goes down, but it comes back. We go down and we don't come back. Once the candle's out, it's out for good. Uh, we might be able to control many things in our lives, but this is one thing we don't have power over. Once death swallows us up, that's it. That hopelessness can also be seen from certain popular inscriptions in tombs in that era. Uh, one says, I was not, and I was, I am not, and I care not. So, I was not, I wasn't born. I was, and then I'm not again, and I don't care. It's a statement of meaninglessness, hopelessness beyond the grave. And one more grave inscription says, if you want to know who I am, the answer is ash and burnt embers. Again, this, this universal uh, sense of hopelessness and futility in the face of death. And this is not, of course, just an ancient problem. This is the human condition. This is something that we as moderns very much face as well. Our impotence and, apart from Jesus, hopelessness in, in the face of the grave. But Easter speaks to that impotence and helplessness. Uh, what we celebrate today is the fact that God through his son has overcome the grave. And there, there is, for those who trust in Jesus, hope even beyond the grave. This morning we will consider three things as we look at this passage. A, the resurrection really happened. B, the resurrection imparts peace and hope to those who believe. And three, the resurrection is a call to believe in Jesus. So here's the account. Easter morning arrives. And there's a certain irony here, isn't there? Mary comes to the tomb, to the place of the dead. She is looking for a corpse. She wants to honor her Lord by taking care of the corpse. But she notices that the stone that was meant to secure the tomb has been dislodged. And she concludes that someone has taken the body. So she runs the, to the apostles, uh, Peter and John, and says, someone's taken the Lord. And then they dash to the tomb. They run, we are told. Uh, John gets there first, and then Peter follows after. Why is that detail included? To be clear, this is not like some sort of symbol for uh, John's superiority in the church or something like this. Uh, it has no symbolic significance. Why is it included? Because it's the kind of thing that an eyewitness would include in retelling the story. John is retelling the story, and he recalls that they ran to the tomb on that day, uh, and he beat Peter to the tomb. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of incidental evidence that we are dealing with, not made-up fantastic stories, but with eyewitness testimony. So John gets there first, but true to form, he doesn't enter the tomb. John is portrayed as a reflective individual. He sees that these, uh, the burial cloth has been, that remains in the tomb, but there's no body. And, and you get the sense that he's looking at this detail and trying to figure out what's going on. Peter, true to form, gets there and bolts in. What's going on? Uh, 
You know, ask questions later. He, he, he goes inside the tomb and he sees uh, not just the linen cloth that was wrapped around Jesus, but also the, the linen uh, strips that were wrapped around his head, folded together and put to the side. And interestingly, we are told that John looked at this and he believed. Uh, and then we're told, but he didn't yet know that, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So what does that mean? The, the idea is that John saw these linen strips and he concluded that Jesus was alive even though he couldn't put it together yet with scripture. He couldn't see the significance of what had taken place. But nevertheless, he believed. Why did he believe? Well, uh, if someone had taken the body, they wouldn't have left the linen strips. First of all, they were valuable, as were the spices connected to them, so you wouldn't have left it. Plus, uh, stealing a corpse was a big deal. You could be punished. And so if you're going to steal a corpse, you just grab it and go. You don't take off the linen strips and then take the body. It doesn't make any sense. The fact that the linen strips were there indicates that Jesus wasn't whisked away by his enemies, but actually that he is risen. Again, this is, the pieces haven't all come into place for John, but he looks at it and says, he's risen. And we are meant to look at that empty tomb, the discarded linen cloths, and of course, the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. And we are meant to say what John said and the early apostles said, he is risen. This actually happened. What we are looking at here, as I said earlier, is not make-believe stories, but eyewitness testimony. John says, I was there, I saw the empty tomb, indeed I saw Jesus himself, and he died on Friday, but rose again from the grave on Sunday. And these things are written that you might believe. One of the distinctive features about Christianity in contrast to other religions is that it is a historical religion. If certain things didn't take place in history, didn't really happen, then Christianity's finished. The Apostle Paul knew this well when he said, if Christ is dead, then we are still in our sins. Eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live hedonistically if Jesus is dead. There's no point. We're still dead in our sins. Everything turns on the historical reality of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Then there is boundless hope for humanity. It's important for us to affirm that this really happened and these things were written down for us, this eyewitness testimony, that we too would believe. So it actually took place. The disciples leave and Mary uh, presumably gets there a little bit later and she's distraught. She's sobbing, confused. Then she peeks into the tomb and she sees two angels, one at the head of Jesus' body used to be, one at his feet. And this is a sign that God has done something wonderful and spectacular. And they say, why are you weeping? With the perhaps subtle insinuation that she shouldn't be. This is Easter morning after all. This is not a time for weeping. This is a time for singing. And she says, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. How do you feel about that, knowing the resurrection that's just taking place? On the one hand, you feel a certain appreciation for her deep loyalty and devotion to Jesus. You lo- you know, she loves the Lord, wants to be with him. On the other hand, she just doesn't understand how big, how majestic, how wonderful her Lord is. What is she doing looking for the body? Again, when she actually sees Jesus, she doesn't initially notice that it's Jesus. She thinks it's a gardener. And she says, where have you put the body so I can take him? Again, we appreciate her devotion to Jesus, but she has not begun to understand the majesty and the glory of the risen Lord. He has gone into the grave and come up on the other side, and he is the king over all. He doesn't need us to pick up his body and take care of it. He takes care of us. And then he says to her, Mary, light bulb goes off. 
It's Jesus, teacher. And this is probably a fulfillment of John 10, where the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. When Jesus speaks her name, we know this is the good shepherd that we love. And she recognizes him, and he says, well, don't hold on to me. I'm not yet ascended, meaning that final decisive break uh, between my earthly ministry and my ascended state hasn't quite happened yet. You'll see me again. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go tell the other disciples, apostles, of what's taking place. She is, if you like, an apostle to the apostles in the first instance. Go and tell them. But what we have and what she saw in this moment was the one who had died on Good Friday, whose body they placed in the tomb. He had gone into the deepest reaches of death, and he had broken through to the other side. Uh, This is a a moment in human history that has been completely unprecedented and unparalleled by anything that transpired before. Prior to this moment in history, we're born, we toil, we die, and we stay dead. And the next generation is born, they toil, they die, and they stay dead, and so it goes. Death swallows up everything. That wheel that has been turning from the dawn of creation comes to a screeching halt resurrection of Jesus and it begins to turn backward one of us son of God and a human being like us died and broke through to the other side and he is now beyond the reach of death death couldn't hold him and he is victorious over it he conquered it and will never die again a human being has burst forth from death that's the first thing we need to say as we read this account A man who died rose again. Now, what does it mean for us? What is the significance of the resurrection? Well, the significance of the resurrection is multifaceted, but I want to underscore two things this morning. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus means that we have peace with God. And secondly, that we have the hope of the resurrection. Notice where the apostles are that evening, that Sunday. They're huddled together in a home with the doors locked in fear of the reprisal from Jewish leadership. They're frightened by uh, the punishment that they might have to endure as followers of Jesus. He's been killed. What's going to happen to us? Let me point out that if you were making this stuff up and, and you recognize that the apostle, like, wh- what is an apostle? The fundamental responsibility of an apostle is to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus, to tell the world about Jesus. Okay? This is the foundation of the church. These guys huddled together in fear foundation of the church. If you're making it up, you would make these foundational characters certainly look a little bit more respectable. You know, they were waiting by the tomb for it to happen, something like that, right? Instead, they're fearful. They're they're together in a home. The doors are locked. This is just one more indication, indirect indication, that we're dealing not with make-believe stories, but with historical reality. So there they are, and Jesus appears in their midst. First thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Now, shalom, peace, was a conventional greeting, and so we might not think too much of it, uh, but I think John wants us to see that that phrase, peace be with you, is full of significance. It's full of significance because of the context in which it's spoken. Jesus just died and rose again. So when he says, peace be with you, that is a peace grounded in what he has just accomplished. But secondly, Notice that peace be with you is actually repeated three times in this passage. It's that first instance, and then he says, peace be with you again, in verse 21. And then when he sees Thomas again, uh, he says, peace be with you to him and the other disciples. So the repetition underscores its importance. 
Think about this. Jesus suffers, he dies, he comes back, and he pronounces peace upon his disciples. The peace he's talking about is peace with God. There is the cessation of all hostilities between man and God, and we are no longer his enemies, but his friends. That's the peace in view. And to appreciate it, we need to recognize that the default condition of human beings is not to be at peace with God. The default condition of human beings is to be estranged from God, their relationships severed. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He made everything. He made us. He owns us. We exist for him. Uh, We were made to center our whole life on him. He was always meant to be the center of our existence. His will for us is good and right and wise. And if we had submitted, we we would have known joy and peace. God himself is the fountain of life. To know him is to be truly alive. We would have been happy and glad in submitting to the creator. But instead of doing that, the story of every human life is one of rebellion. We have all rejected our creator as Lord over our lives, and we have sought to be our own lords. We put ourselves first. I'm going to do what I want to do. Life is about me and my desires, and we disregard God and his commandments. As a result of that, according to scripture, we are under the judgment of God. It is not well with us. We are not at peace with God, precisely because God is good and right and just and wise. He's not a God who simply looks the other way when his creatures rebel. He is a God who punishes sin. And that's the thing that makes death so terrible. What we fear fundamentally in death is not simply this unnatural separation of spirit and body, but the judgment to come. The recognition that on the other side of death, we will face our creator, we will give an account for every word and thought and deed, and we will be declared guilty and cast out of his presence forever and ever. That is the death under the death. But this peace that Jesus pronounces to his disciples meets that need. God is just and he is judge, but he's also the savior of sinners. On Good Friday, our Lord Jesus Christ suffered, he endured the anguish of the cross. The full weight of divine judgment that we deserve fell not upon us, it fell upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And like a stone, he sank deeper and deeper and deeper into the vast ocean of God's judgment until he paid the full price for our sins. And when he had paid the full price for our sins, he rose up again triumphantly to everlasting life. The resurrection declares to all of humanity, to all those who believe in Jesus Christ, it is paid in full. Our guilt, our judgment, our shame, our sorrow has all been left behind in the tomb And with Jesus Christ, we have the victory. We have peace with God. Every single sin has been pardoned. The sin we've ever committed, every single sin has been pardoned for the sake of Jesus, resulting in peace with God. We are no longer his enemies. We are his children, and he is our father. That's the peace that Jesus has secured for us and for all those who believe. Now, it's precisely that peace that enables us to look at death and not be utterly controlled by its horror and hopelessness. We recognize that death is hard, it's unnatural, but the sting of death, says the Apostle Paul, has been taken away. That judgment that we dread on the other side has been taken away. Instead of dying and being condemned, we die and go into the open arms of our Heavenly Father. That's the destiny of every single believer. Death is the last step, the last step in a long journey 
back into the open arms of the Father. If you believe in Jesus, that's what awaits you after the grave. The open arms of the Father. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why we can look at death as a defeated foe. Its sting, its horror, its terror has been taken away because we have peace with God. This is far more consoling a solution to the problem of death than the one that many of our contemporaries, many people in the world uh, seek refuge in. Many people deal with the horror of death by essentially denying it. Uh, Many people numb themselves with entertainment, an assortment of pleasures. They try to forget what awaits them. Uh, They try to be busy with work, distract themselves. When death snatches away a coworker, a friend, a spouse, they try to take it lightly, remember the positive. But all of these things are fundamentally exercises of futility, ways of denying our utter helplessness in the face of death. The only real solution to the horror of death is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the peace that he has procured for us that enables us not to lose heart and to have hope beyond the grave. That's the first thing he accomplishes then. We have peace with God through his death and resurrection. Second thing is that we have the hope of resurrection. Uh, So Thomas, often labeled uh, the unbelieving Thomas, um, the apostle who struggles to, to believe, is described in verses 24 through 30. It's not entirely fair, I don't think, because all of the other disciples except John struggle to believe before seeing Jesus. He just happened, Thomas, you know, happened not to be there when, the, when Jesus appeared to, to the first batch of disciples. So he missed that unveiling of the risen Lord. And he says, unless I see Jesus, I'm not going to believe. So eight days later, Jesus appears even to Thomas. He says, Thomas, don't disbelieve, believe. You want to put your finger on, in my hands and in my side? Go ahead, Thomas. Now, it's not clear that he has the impudence to do it. It seems that the mere appearance of Jesus is sufficient to cause him to believe because he says, my Lord and my God. Imagine the audacity. Okay, let me, you know, I, I, don't, think, I don't think he touched Jesus. I think it was just a, the fact that Jesus appeared was sufficient. And we get what is the highest confession probably in the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. This is a naked confession of divinity. This is indeed not just a human being, but the very Son of God. What I want you to notice is that as Jesus stood before Thomas, he had a body. You can't touch a ghost. If this had been just a spirit, Thomas couldn't have reached out and touched him. Jesus touched me with the implication that Jesus was standing before him, not as a spirit, but an embodied being. And this is so crucial for us to understand. When we speak about the resurrection, we don't just mean that Jesus' spirit lived on. The Old Testament is aware of that hope. Uh, The soul is immortal. It continues on. Uh, The resurrection means that the spirit of Jesus and his body were reunited, and this is a bodily resurrection. The empty tomb, which is regularly stressed in the Gospels, points to the same fact. Notice what doesn't happen in the Gospels. You don't have Jesus' corpse in the tomb, and then Jesus as a ghost appearing to different groups of people. That isn't a resurrection. What you have in every gospel is the tomb is empty because the body and soul of Jesus have been reunited and the resurrection is necessarily and inescapably a bodily thing. That's what the resurrection is. Jesus is now beyond the reach of the grave. He will never die again. He has broken through 
to a new order of existence and life. And here's the crucial thing. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul describes him as the first fruit. In other words, what happened to him will happen to all those of us who are connected to him by faith. Just as that first grape on the vine indicates that the harvest is coming. There are more grapes coming on the vine. So also the resurrection of Jesus means that all those of us who are connected to him will in exactly the same way rise up from the grave again to new life. So this is a step beyond what we've just said about peace with God. It's one thing to be forgiven of your sins and then at death to go and be in the presence of God as a, as a spirit or a soul, which does happen to us, praise God, and there will be joy. But that's not the final stage of our salvation. A day is coming when Jesus will come back in great glory, the trumpet blast from heaven. He's going to come back. We will see him. And when he returns, he will say, live. And the people of God will come out of the tombs, not just as spirits floating around, but as embodied beings to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation. That is our destiny. We will not be allowed uh, to languish in the grave. The day is coming when Jesus will return and summon us back to life. Are you aware that's your future? If you believe in Jesus, are you aware that that's where your life is headed? This passing age is passing. And one day we will rise again and be in the very presence of God in a renewed creation. The prophet Isaiah describes the victory of God over death and suffering in Isaiah 25, verses 7 and 8. This is what it would be like. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Death will be no more. There will be no sighing and sorrow, and every tear will be wiped away by God himself. Our sorrows in this life will be reversed and give way to joy. Isaiah also pictures this resurrection, this coming age, as a, a time of feasting and celebration. Isaiah 25, 6. On, on this mountain, let me, before I read it, if you, if you were given a school assignment and you had to come up with an image for the resurrection, resurrected, resurrected state, what would it be? How would you... Describe it. What metaphors, what symbols, what pictures would you, would you use? Well, listen to this, Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Uh, the, the picture we get in Isaiah is a picture of feasting, food, rich food, fatty food, wine. Uh, and it's a very embodied picture of the world to come, isn't it? Notice it's not, you know, spirits floating around in some sort of vacuum, you know, you know by themselves. These, there, there is a feasting, there is celebration. This is the imagery that's used. And it points to the reality that this is an embodied existence, but it also points to the fact that this is going to be a time of great joy and celebration. The time for sighing and tears and sorrow will be behind us at that point the age of celebration and song will have come. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 uh, describes that coming resurrection as a time of rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered the God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The life in this world is often portrayed in scripture as toil, a wearying, grinding work, even 
uh, life at its best. But a day is coming when we will experience rest from the burdens and sorrows of this life. It's a day of celebration, a day when the sorrows are set aside, a day of rest. That's in front of you. Do you believe that? It's around the corner. If you believe that, that means that you always have every reason uh, to be of good cheer, to have hope, to be encouraged and not lose heart. I mean, if you're facing some crushing sorrow and, you don't, and there's no hope in sight and you think that the future is just going to be marked by this continued sorrow and suffering, you, you, that, that's soul crushing. Part of what enables us to endure is that we look down the corridor of time into the future and we see that there's hope. At some point, there's relief. Uh, that's, ex- that's exactly the position we're in. Yes, we might experience suffering and pain and difficulties in this life, but we see that in front of us there's a resurrection. That gives us hope even in the midst of life's sorrows and enables us to endure. We're like that uh, college student who's snowed under by exams and deadlines and reading and essays and papers and late night study groups and sleepless nights, just snowed under by his studies. But the thing that enables him to endure is the prospect that summer vacation is just around the corner. In just a little while longer, all of these burdens will be set aside and I will be happy. In the same way, resurrection is around the corner. However hard things are in the present, they won't last forever. The darkness is passing, and life, life will swallow death forever. That's our hope. Final thing then to note is that John doesn't just describe these things so that we can be informed. The call of Scripture, indeed the call of God to every one of us this morning, is to believe. We see that in Jesus' response to Thomas. Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Uh, And he's not, I don't believe, criticizing Thomas. The the apostles were meant to see Jesus so they can be witnesses. But the way we believe is a little bit different. They believe because they actually saw the risen Lord. We believe by accepting their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We accept their witness, we believe it, and we experience the life that Jesus has promised. He pronounces a blessing on those who have not seen yet have believed. Those who believe the testimony of the apostles are blessed. They live under God's favor. And then John tells us the purpose of his book. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the bottom line. It's not, the the purpose is not simply to inform you, to stimulate you. God himself has revealed to you what he has done in history through his son to save sinners. And the crucial question is, do you believe? Do you accept that to be true, and are you resting in Jesus as your Savior? What we believe is that Jesus is indeed the Son of God who became a human being to save us, that he died and rose again, and that there is salvation in his name. That's what we believe. And to believe means, first of all, that we accept these things to be true. We assent to them. But secondly, we also, we don't just simply say, yeah, I agree, it's true, but we rest in Jesus as our Savior. If you're falling off a cliff, and there's a branch jutting out from the side of the cliff, it's not enough to go, you know, if I lay hold of that branch, it'll save me, right? You actually have to take hold of the branch for it to save you, right? Uh, In the same way, it's not enough to go, yeah, I think these things are true, but there needs to be a personal resting in Jesus. We need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I can't save myself. I can't wash away my own guilt and sin and stain. Without you, I am dead. But Lord Jesus, I believe you died and rose again, and I rest in what you have accomplished for me that I might have peace with God. The call of God this morning to us is to believe and not doubt. 
One reason uh, people will sometimes refuse the call of God is because they're holding on to something that they think following Jesus will require them to give up. They don't want to lose control over their life. They want to continue to be king. And they fear that if I submit to Jesus, I'm going to have to give up a lot of things that I may not want to give up. One response to that, look again at this chapter and look again specifically at at what happens when Jesus shows up in a person's life. Where do we find Mary? Mary is grieving by the tomb, confused, without any answers. And after she meets, meets Jesus, we find that she is encouraged, comforted, and now she has a purpose and a mission to go and tell the other disciples. Discouraged and confused, mission, purpose. And then the disciples themselves, what are they doing? They're hiding in a home. They're fearful. Jesus shows up, and John tells us they were glad. Jesus turns our fear and angst into joy. Thomas struggles to believe. Jesus shows up, and Thomas believes. When Jesus comes into a person's life, the fear, the aimlessness, the unbelief give way to direction and purpose and joy in life. The, the bottom line is the life Je- that Jesus has for you, the life under his kingly authority is far better than anything you've ever known. Another way to say it is, the problem with you is not that you want to be happy, but that you don't want to be happy enough. Because if you really wanted gladness, you would go to Jesus who alone can satisfy our longing to be glad. Of course, here I draw on C.S. Lewis, Uh, who made the point very memorably when he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So if you want abundant life, and gladness. Run to Jesus, not away from Jesus. That's the testimony of John. This morning, God himself calls you to make a decision. He extends his hand to you in grace and salvation. He has shown you what he has done through his son Jesus to bring you to himself, and he calls you to believe. Don't walk away. Don't reject the offer of God for salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ and find the life that he alone can give. And do this recognizing you don't get an infinite number of Easter's. The day is coming when all of us are going to leave this world. And the decision that we have made in this life is irrevocable. Today is the time of salvation. Today is the day of decision. Believe and live. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is our prayer that the joy of Easter would be radiating in our hearts, uh, that we would be a people characterized consistently by joy, by peace, and by hope. We pray that the sufferings of this life would not swallow up our hope, but that our hope would swallow up the darkness and heartaches of this life. Lord, use your word, we ask, to accomplish all of your good purposes in all of our lives. For your glory and our good, amen.